So a few weeks ago, Pastor Aaron, he mentioned how he, uh, he disassembled his dryer to get rid of the discomforting sound of witches burning in oil whenever it was in operation. Last week, Pastor Aiden talked about his penchant for DIYing, learning from YouTube how to do it yourself. Let the record show that I do not disassemble anything that wasn't assembled by my kids with Legos, nor do I ever DIY. I prefer what is commonly known as HSE, the, the HSE approach to fixing things, hire somebody else. Of course, my frugality also makes me hesitant to want to pay money to hire somebody else. So my approach is probably more accurately described as T-T-I-I-A-H-S-E-O-A-A-L-R. Try to ignore it and hire somebody else only as a last resort. Now, I'm not the least bit ashamed of the a that aspect of who I am. There are simply other things that God created me to do that do not involve fixing things or building things or rebuilding things or assembling things or disassembling things or reassembling things. And they definitely do not ever, under any circumstances, involve power tools. Now, one of our rear windows in my car does not go up anymore. Little buttons which make the window go up and down, they no longer work for that window. And I realized that the buttons were becoming unreliable, so once we got the window in the up position, I put the window lock on and told the kids the window stays up forever. And then I let someone borrow my car last week, not telling them about the dead window switch, and they returned the car with the window in the down position. And it appears to want to stay there forever. Now, there are probably a few folks here today who actually know how to fix a problem like that. It might be super simple for all I know, probably just a disconnected left phalange or something. Based on the way some of you talk about your tools, you might even have a special window sucker upper device that vacuums the missing window right up that slot and back into place. Others of you might be intrigued to check YouTube to see how to fix what I presume could be a relatively simple problem. I, on the other hand, have decided that we probably just have to think of ourselves as having a three-windowed car with a cavernous and permanent rear opening from now on. And I won't be able to drive that vehicle on days when it's likely to rain, and we will need to always travel in that car with copious amounts of trash bags and duct tape in case we get caught in an unexpected downpour. This is life with me. You can pray for my family. It's not an easy life. I share this with you in light of the title and the verbiage for the sermon series that we're currently tackling, Rebuilding. Rebuilding. It might as well be speaking Swedish to me. That's just not my thing, at least not in the literal sense. But thankfully, as I hope you've discovered in these last weeks, we're not really talking about power tools and handyman projects. What are we rebuilding? Well, in many ways, I would say that we're rebuilding just about everything in our lives that's not structural. This season of pandemic has been more disruptive than anything that's occurred in my 43 years of living. I wasn't around for the trauma of the Vietnam War or the tremendous turmoil of the 1960s, so I can't compare, but I know enough about history to think that it's not an absurd stretch to suggest that we haven't experienced anything as disruptive to the entire world as this global pandemic since the Second World War, which is only within the lifetime of a very few of you and within the memory of even fewer. The word unprecedented may be overused, but it is the right word to use to describe our reality. Now, I know that there, there are some among us who think that the dis this disruption is artificial or at least overblown by the media or by your least favorite politicians or by people who intentionally eat kale or by whomever elicits your deepest suspicions and disdain. 
Wherever we stand on that question, frankly, it is irrelevant to what we're talking about. The fact remains that the disruption has had sweeping repercussions for all of us, regardless of whether we think that all of them have been necessary or legitimate. The disruptions are indisputable. So what are we rebuilding? We are rebuilding rhythms and routines. We're rebuilding relationships and friendships and marriages. We're rebuilding vocations and financial stability. We're rebuilding work life and family life and hobbies and habits and spiritual disciplines. We're rebuilding church life. Much of what we have known has been turned upside down, and we're left with the assignment of putting together the pieces again. And in doing so, hopefully asking good questions like, what things did we used to do that we want to be able to do again? And what things did we used to do that we want to do again but differently? And what things did we used to do that we don't ever want to do again? And what things did we never do before that we discovered we want to start doing or keep doing? In every area of life, we are rebuilding. And I think that many of us have discovered that the rebuilding process is slow, at times excruciatingly so. We've not crossed some imaginary finish line that allows us to say, okay, everything is normal again. It just isn't. And it won't be normal for a while. And many of us are in the process of discerning what normal even is anymore and how much we even want to return to normalcy. We're rebuilding our lives. So this intentionally slow and steady sermon series is taking us through a broad array of interconnected topics that are relevant to rebuilding our lives. Pastor Aaron began the series talking about God as our constant. Week two was a call call to rebuild in humility. Last week, Pastor Aiden offered us a message about rebuilding in confidence. Today, we're going to talk about rebuilding through disruption, rebuilding in the face of opposition, rebuilding when the going gets tough, rebuilding with, with perseverance. It would be almost irresponsible for us to preach a sermon series about rebuilding without spending some time with what is probably the most famous rebuilding project in all of Scripture. Nehemiah. And I'll be doing that thing that is always a good idea, preaching one sermon from an entire book of the Bible. Uh, Don't worry. I'm going to be pulling out just a few highlights. And as a quick summary for those who may not know the story of Nehemiah or haven't read it recently, here's the basic gist to to set the context for those highlights. The Israelites, God's people, were at their strongest under King David and his son, King Solomon, who built a glorious temple in Jerusalem for the worship of God. But that united kingdom split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. These kingdoms were led by good kings and bad kings, often at war with each other. After 200 years, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. The people from those northern ten tribes of Israel were dispersed and displaced. The southern kingdom of Judah, which contained Jerusalem, kept trucking for another 125 years until it was conquered by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed. The people were deported. Jerusalem was reduced to rubble. And that sets the stage for the subject of today's message. We'll call him Nehemiah, primarily because his name is Nehemiah. At the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, um, and we know that his people were actually from Jerusalem, so he had connection to that land. But but at the book of Nehemiah, he's serving as the cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians and were now ruling all of Palestine. And the Persians were, were somewhat more benevolent rulers than the Babylonians, and they had allowed some of the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and the surrounding area. While working in the Persian palace, Nehemiah caught wind of the fact that Jerusalem, though somewhat resettled, and even with a shabbily rebuilt temple, was still largely a pile of rubble, with no wall, which was a big deal in 450 BC in the Middle East. A city wasn't a functional city if it didn't have a formidable wall to provide protection and stability. So Nehemiah was heartbroken. 
for the state of his beloved Jerusalem. And the first half of the book of Nehemiah details the immense rebuilding project undertaken by God's people under the leadership of Nehemiah, who got permission from King Artaxerxes to relocate to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall that had been laying in ruin for decades. And what makes the story of Nehemiah so compelling and the favorite book of many Christians is because it's a story of overcoming obstacles, of scaling barriers, of persisting through opposition. We love a good story of overcoming and persevering despite opposition. Why does NBC show us all of those personal interest stories during the Olympics? You know, there's this person that had an intense fear of horses because their father was eaten by an angry horse, but they decide to conquer that fear, and then they end up winning a gold medal in equestrian trampoline archery. We love that story because most of us have some obstacles and opposition that get in the way of whatever we're trying to do. And the bigger the goal, the bigger the opposition. So, so let's spend a few minutes identifying some of the primary obstacles that get in the way of what God's calling Nehemiah to do in the midst of his rebuilding project, which will provide a point of reference for us in the midst of our ongoing rebuilding project. And midway through rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, here's what we, we read in Nehemiah 4, verse 10. Nehemiah 4, verse 10. Then the people of Judah began to complain, the workers are getting tired, and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. So the first rebuilding disruption is exhaustion. It's exhaustion. The people of Judah had been working hard to get the wall half built. It was built most of the way around, but only about halfway up, and, and they were exhausted. They were spent. One of my favorite German words that's made its way into the English. They were kaput. Are any of us aware of any sense of exhaustion in our lives? It's fascinating that over the past 16 months, particularly the first 12 or so of those months when we were in our most isolated state, I had conversation after conversation with people who said two seemingly contradictory things. My schedule is as empty as it's ever been, and I feel tired all the time. I've talked again and again with folks about the relentless pressure of decision fatigue that so many of us we're experiencing, and still are in many ways, when every little thing that we used to do pre-pandemic without giving it a second thought now required a whole series of decisions. Should I do this thing at all? Should I only do this if it's outside? Should I wear a mask in this situation or that situation? For anyone trying to be wise and compassionate and responsible, every little thing has involved a completely new set of decisions that we, than we've ever had to make before. And I can attest to the fact that as church leaders, we have had to make what feels like a thousand decisions every week about what we're doing and not doing, how we're doing what we are doing, and then explaining what we're doing and not doing and why. Now, to be clear, that's not a complaint. That's the nature of leadership in this season of history. I look at the folks leading the, the State College Area School District who are accused of wanting children to die no matter what decision they make. And that mirrors what's happening at Penn State or Nittany Christian School or nonprofit organizations, local businesses of every size and stripe. Every leader has been in the same boat. The sense of decision fatigue is pervasive. I'm tired. Even as we've been reemerging from some of the weight of the first year of this pandemic reality, I'm still tired. This has been hard, and I know that some of you are also tired. That's okay. We're in good company. We're not the first folks to experience exhaustion in the midst of trying to do the right thing. Nehemiah and the Jewish resettlers of Jerusalem had to navigate exhaustion too. And we'll come back to a few ways to deal with that particular disruption. Let's look at another passage in Nehemiah to see another rebuilding obstacle. We're going to turn to Nehemiah 6, and we'll be in Nehemiah 6 for the rest of our time if you want to turn there. Here's what we read in Nehemiah 6, starting in verse 1. 
Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors and the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to come to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But uh, ironic, isn't it? Oh, no. <laughs> Don't go to oh, no. <laughs> Note to self. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. What's the second rebuilding disruption? Distraction. Distraction. In the midst of an intensive season of focused work on this important project, these leaders of neighboring nations were pestering Nehemiah to, to come on down and meet with them. We just want to have a chat. Now, can any of us imagine living in a world filled with distraction, with things getting in the way of the main things that God wants us to be doing? Netflix, anyone? Smartphones? YouTube? Wikipedia? Rabbit holes? Those are brutal for someone like me with an obsession with information and trivia. I can start by reading a Wikipedia article about Luca, the, the Pixar film we watched out on the church lawn on Friday evening with a few hundred Alliance sports camp friends. And in six Wikipedia clicks, I'm reading about the history of the DeLorean Motor Company. Seriously, I just did that yesterday. That's not a hypothetical. <laughs> Technology can fill our lives with 27 hours of distraction every day. Neil Postman wrote a book whose title alone offers some provocative perspective for us to consider called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Or how about the requests and the needs and the invitations and opportunities put in front of us in countless different areas of life from people we want to help, from people we love, people who matter to us, whose opinions matter to us. Our relational network is so broad and stretched so thin that we can feel a responsibility to try to cater in some way to literally hundreds of people who have demands on us. I don't think it's an exaggeration to think we are probably the most distracted people in human history, whether it's entertainment or people or any number of other things. So instead of rebuilding some relationships that have been struggling of late, we might be inclined to binge watch our favorite 27 shows or spend countless hours watching quite uninteresting Olympic sports. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm talking to you skateboarding. <laughs> Even when they execute it properly, it all looks the same. Instead of rebuilding some important spiritual practices in our lives, we default to saying yes to everything once again. Overcommitted, our calendars packed with activity and events. It's one of the great American idols, busyness. Ask almost anyone how they're doing, and they're likely to say, among other things, with a scrunched face, oh, really busy. We were given a gift of forced non-busyness during this pandemic, which I heard from person after person felt so good to be uncluttered and non-frantic for life to be slower with time to breathe? And what have many of us done as soon as some of our options were back on the table? Boom, super busy again. Now, we're not necessarily busy with bad things. They're just, in, in so many cases, not essential things, which crowd our lives and fill our schedules and distract us from really investing in whatever rebuilding task God has for us right now, whether that's rebuilding relationships or church life or neighborhood connections or spiritual habits. Distraction is often subtle, but it's such an insidious disruption from the work God has for us. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think so. So exhaustion, distraction. Let's keep reading in Nehemiah 6 to see another rebuilding disruption. Now in Nehemiah 6, verse 5. The fifth time Sanballat's servant came 
with an open letter in his hand, and this is what it said. There's a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it is true, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that's why you're building the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you've appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you, look, there's a king in Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king. So I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You're making up the whole thing. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that, that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. The third rebuilding disruption, criticism. Criticism is, and criticism is probably an overly soft word to describe what's happening here in this case. We could call it character assassination just as well. These leaders who are opposed to the work that Nehemiah is leading decide that maybe they can muck up the works by just flat out lying, defaming Nehemiah's reputation, accusing him of being a traitor, which we know from the beginning of Nehemiah isn't even remotely true. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to do this rebuilding project with the blessing and with the full support of his king. He went as a subject of the king, not as a rival to the throne. But criticism and critique and name-calling is an effective way to disrupt the work of many of us. How many here today can attest to the fact that you have been falsely accused of something, maybe specifically over the past 18 months, something that is the exact opposite of what you have actually been doing? In this volatile season, accusations are aplenty. I've been accused of thinking and pursuing many things that couldn't be further from my thoughts and intentions. Some things based on lies, some on misunderstanding, some on confusion. Truthfully, it's perplexing and, and, and hurtful at times. But it's a really good tool of disruption from what God wants me to be doing from day to day. Because I want to defend and explain and clarify or at least understand whatever is being said about me. And if I'm honest, I know that I have been on the other end of some of those accusations. I have been the one assigning motivations and intentions to people with whom I disagree that are untrue and certainly ungracious. I've heard Pastor Aaron in his preaching and in private conversation calling us to be a people who give each other the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's a great message that some of you really need to hear. I think it's a hard message that I often don't want to hear. I will say this. There's no doubt in my mind that criticism and name-calling and insults are some of the easiest and simplest ways that all of us can get distracted from the work God intends for us to do. We get hurt, we get defensive, we get combative, and we've lost our focus on the thing that God has put in front of us from our rebuilding assignment. Another simple and subtle way for us to get off track. So exhaustion, distraction, criticism. Let's identify one more rebuilding disruption. Again, continuing on in Nehemiah 6, now in verse 10, we read the following. Later I went to visit Shemaiah, son of Deliah, and grandson of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the door shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. But I replied, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him and that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. So the last rebuilding disruption that we see here in Nehemiah is fear. Fear. The enemies of God's rebuilding project, when all else had failed, tried to intimidate Nehemiah and scare him into ineffectiveness. Nehemiah didn't bite, but opportunity for fear was ripe. And fear is such a brutal 
disruptor. Fear comes in a thousand different shades. It's, it's had all kinds of different forms for many of us over this past pandemic season. Whether you're afraid of a virus or sickness or death or the deterioration of friendships or government overreach or infringement upon civil liberties or religious persecution or financial distress or job loss or marriage collapse, we are all prone to slipping into a spirit of fear in any number of ways. Why does the phrase fear not appear hundreds of times in the Bible? Because that's one of our go-to emotional places. And God says, you don't need to live in that space. Many of us live squarely in that space, frequently and maybe permanently. And a global pandemic didn't help. How many of us can really be part of God's work through us when we're stifled and gripped and paralyzed by fear? If there's a more effective rebuilding disruptor than fear, I'm not sure what it is. So, does any of this seem familiar to any of you? Exhaustion, distraction, criticism, fear. These are not new barriers for us to overcome. But like so many things, the intensity of this season has allowed possible disruptors to emerge in our lives and potentially get in the way from our ability to be who God wants us to be and to do all that God wants us to do for his kingdom and for his glory. So what now shall we do? If one or any of these ancient tools of disruption that were tossed in the face of Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem are still relevant in our day, in our lives, what might we do? How might we proceed? We read the culmination of that project in Nehemiah 6, verse 15. So on October 2, the wall was finished just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. In 52 days, they had done something that no one had attempted for decades. They did it in less than two months, and they did it despite a raft of intense points of opposition and sources of disruption. Now, clearly, this is not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison with our present reality. While the Nehemiah Project was admittedly huge, it was also finite and tangible in a way that what we're talking about is decidedly not. As I mentioned, there's no clear-cut end game to the rebuilding that's in front of us. And as we observe Virus case count numbers rising again over the past few weeks that had previously been decreasing for the preceding several months. We don't even know if we'll have to press pause on some of our collective rebuilding or even deconstruct some things for, for another season of time. One thing I hope that we've all learned for sure is that none of us are in control of our external circumstances and none of us can anticipate exactly where we're headed. As Pastor Aaron said a few weeks ago, life is not always up and to the right. That's true about rebuilding when we're coming out of a pandemic. And having acknowledged that much uncertainty remains, I would still contend that the disruptions that we have experienced, are experiencing, and will likely continue to experience are in fact timeless and common to all. And so there are a few rebuilding principles we might extract from the Nehemiah success story that can be helpful to us. Rebuilding principles that are as true in 21st century America as they were 2,500 years ago in Palestine. Here's the first one, the first key to rebuilding. Pray. Pray. As someone who is admittedly not a natural-born prayer, that is not my go-to internal impulse when the going gets tough. I'm more inclined when my plans and my progress are disrupted to think about what to do or to talk to people I respect about what to do or to read from someone smarter than I am about what to do. So it is striking to me how frequently Nehemiah inserts prayer into the narrative of this rebuilding initiative with all the obstacles that he encounters. He prays in Nehemiah 1, verses 5 to 11, he prays in Nehemiah 2.4, prays in Nehemiah 4, 4 and 5, prays in Nehemiah 4.9, Nehemiah 5.19, Nehemiah 6.9, prays in Nehemiah 6.14. Several of those prayers are right in the midst of the obstacles that we've been discussing today. Now, to be sure, some of those prayers were short and sweet. 
One of them is as succinct as, now strengthen my hands. That's the prayer. And that is praying right to the point. Nothing verbose. But Nehemiah has a clear sense that this whole assignment he got from the Lord will not happen without God's intervention and provision and protection. And so Nehemiah starts with prayer. Here's how Chuck Swindoll summarizes the way of Nehemiah in his book, Hand Me Another Brick. The Lord is the specialist we need for those uncrossable and impossible experiences. He delights in accomplishing what we cannot pull off, but he awaits our cry. He listens for our request. Nehemiah was quick to call for help. His favorite position when faced with problems was the kneeling position. Now, in a few weeks, Pastor Aaron is going to focus his entire message around rebuilding our prayer life. So we'll dig more deeply into the theme, but, but let's be clear here today. One primary and fundamental key to whatever rebuilding God is doing in us and through us is prayer. And one simple way that we are inviting all of you to establish a regular rhythm of prayer is through the Praying 24-7 website, a local initiative to pray for one hour every week for God's work of revival in our church, in our community, and in our region. Wednesday is our day as the State College Alliance Church, so if it's all the same to you, snag an hour on Wednesday. If Wednesdays don't work for whatever reason, any other hour on any other day will do. But let's learn from Nehemiah and be or become a people of prayer. And in our prayers, let's pray for God to help us navigate whatever exhaustion or distraction or criticism or fear might be getting in our way of doing the work that God has planned for us. And that leads us to the second key to rebuilding. The second key to rebuilding is get to work. Get to work. There's an element of the story of Nehemiah that we simply can't ignore. It was hard work. And part of what was necessary was Nehemiah and his crew just getting her done. Nehemiah and the people on his rebuilding team had to exert effort, had to contribute their blood, sweat, and probably tears to this great work. I think that one of the greatest tricks the devil pulls on us Christians is to encourage us to try to choose between false dichotomies, to get us all bunched up trying to choose between an either-or, when in fact the truth is squarely contained by the both-and. There is no doubt that many of us are prone to make our efforts and our successes and our contributions the centerpiece of our walk with God, which ultimately removes God from his throne and puts us in that place. And that's an act of idolatry. But the corrective measure of emphasizing our need for God's guiding hand to be preeminent does not remove from us the responsibility to be part of what God is doing, to contribute, to give our best efforts. Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite go-to passages to help navigate this tension. Here's what Paul wrote. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Though he lived centuries before Jesus fulfilled his plan for our salvation, and before Paul wrote those amazing words, I think that Nehemiah was a case study in living out Ephesians 2. He knew that none of his best plans or strongest efforts would come to fruition without God, but he also knew that God had good things planned for him to do, and so he went about leaning into God and then getting to work. We so easily get this mixed up and trip over ourselves trying to either achieve our way to God's desires for our life or sitting on our hands waiting for God to do something on our behalf. And countless authors have tried to tackle this topic because we often head to one extreme. We have to do everything. 
or the other. We have nothing to do. Think about the title of Swindoll's book that I mentioned a few minutes ago, Hand Me Another Brick. It's a book about Nehemiah's rebuilding project embedded with the idea that our job is to be part of God's labor force. A bad theology, even well-intentioned, can get us off track. Here's what Dallas Willard says, to make sure that our view of grace does not compromise our need to engage with the work that God has put in front of us. The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You've never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. Now, Willard is saying that we can misunderstand something as beautiful as grace as an excuse to be apathetic or disengaged or inactive. No, no, we can't earn God's love and affection, but we can and must be actively involved in putting forth the effort towards whatever God desires from us and for us. That's not incompatible with grace. It's actually the natural byproduct of grace. I'm going to offer you one more quote. This is a long quote from A.W. Tozer, Christian and Missionary Alliance literary legend, and he speaks directly to what God asks of us and pulls no punches here. Listen to this. After all other means had failed to hinder the reconstruction, the conspirators tried to arrange for a conference with Nehemiah. The man of God saw in this an evil purpose to do him mischief and divert him from his monumental work. His reply to the would-be mischief makers is classic and might well be adopted for the all-time stock reply to all such overtures. I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? The great task to which God has called Nehemiah was so important that every other consideration must be weighed. Would that we might have such an overpowering sense of being about our Father's business and be so impressed with the grandeur of our task that we would reject every suggestion of the evil one that would bid us take up some lesser pursuit. Let us rout him with the words that date back to 445 BC and which cannot be improved upon. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Satan's distracting words often come from the most unexpected quarters. Mary would call Martha away from sitting at the feet of the master. Sometimes if we're not careful, our best friend may distract us, or it might be some very legitimate activity. This day's bustle and hurly-burly would too often and too soon call us away from Jesus' feet. These distractions must be immediately dismissed, or we shall know only the barrenness of busyness. Now there's so much in that quote to work with. First of all, why in the world have we abandoned usage of the phrase hurly-burly? It is to our great loss, and I make it my personal commitment to try to bring it back. But more importantly, do we have a great task before us so great that it warrants dismissing everything else so that we're not left with only the barrenness of busyness. Do we know our great task? As we've been talking about this concept of of rebuilding, as we've been talking about this assignment Nehemiah had from God, as we've heard Tozer call us to a great task, I wonder if something has been percolating in your mind or pressing into your heart that might be the great work that God has for you in the coming days, weeks, and months. Maybe that's a great work of reconciliation that you need to pursue in the midst of a broken relationship, a friendship that's been severed or at least drifted apart. Maybe that's a great work of re-engagement with the life of this church, an opportunity for you to jump on board with one of the many serving opportunities where we could use more help on one of our ministry teams. Maybe that's a great work of an upcoming front yard mission initiative that God wants you to take the lead to to organize and pull together some people from your neighborhood or, or even just invite someone over to your home to build relationships 
and share the love of Jesus, indirectly and directly. Maybe that's a great work of extending compassion and empathy to an individual or, or a people group who you've previously dismissed as unworthy of your care and concern. Maybe that's a great work of reestablishing or establishing for the first time some discipline in your spiritual life that you know will require some effort from you, but you also know will help to draw you closer to the heart of God. Maybe that's a great work of leaning into a life of prayer like you never have before. If so, whatever that great work is for you, can we collectively, can we get to work and trust God to take it from there? In fact, that's the very last point today. Uh, our final point to rebuilding, our fi final key to rebuilding is trust God. We're going to hear more about that next week. We've already talked about it the last several weeks. But just to quickly dip our toes in the shallow end of that pool today, what we see from Nehemiah over and over again is his commitment to trusting God, trusting God's plans and God's provision as completely sufficient. And his refusal, bathed in prayer, to be misdirected or distracted or discouraged is a reflection of that core commitment. Again, that simple and beautiful prayer in Nehemiah 6.9, Now strengthen my hands is the perfect convergence of Nehemiah's prayerfulness directed at his work ethic anchored in his trust of God. This message sits squarely on a point of theological tension and not by accident. When we are rebuilding anything of eternal consequence, we need to be a people of prayer. And when we are rebuilding anything of eternal consequence, we need to be people who work hard. And as we invite God to lead and guide and direct, and as we try to do our best to contribute and offer our very best to partner with him in the work that he's already doing, we're ultimately left with an opportunity to trust him. My friend uses a phrase almost every time I talk to her, even though she's experienced more disruptions in her life in the past few years from an earthly perspective than just about anyone I know. And she says to me often, God is good and he is in this, so I am blessed. Because she trusts God, no pain or suffering or earthly challenge. And she has had many, but none have been able to dis dislodge her deep belief that she is blessed. Though the world would look at her circumstances and say, lady, you are cursed. She says, no, 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 no. God is good. And he is in this. And I am blessed. Friends, the disruptions to whatever it is that we're rebuilding in our lives and in our church, in our community, in our school, in our workplace, in our family, in our neighborhood, whatever we're rebuilding, the disruptions are real. Exhaustion is real. Distraction is real. Criticism is real. Fear is real. The point here is not to just wish them away. But when we trust God, when he is our constant, when we come before him in humility and in confidence, those disruptions take their rightful place as ultimately irrelevant to the task that God has given to us. We persevere through the exhaustion. We focus despite the distractions. We ignore the bogus criticism. We embrace his perfect love, which casts out fear. And we say like Nehemiah, I'm engaged in a good work. And through his power, we accomplish all the good things that he's planned for us long ago. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning grateful for this opportunity to open your word and to hear from you. We thank you for the historic example of a leader and a people that pressed forward through the most challenging of circumstances, through much opposition, through many disruptions, to be a part of the amazing, the great work that you were doing in their midst. We thank you, Lord, that today we celebrate through this act of communion that we're about to enter in. We celebrate the one who did the greatest work of all. 
we lean into his example, we follow his way, and we invite your spirit to guide us and lead us and empower us as we go from here, challenged to be part of our own great work, whatever you've given to us today and in the coming days. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus.